The following message is brought to you by George Lawson, Jr., pastor and Bible teacher with Baltimore Bible Church. We'll be reading from the New American Standard Bible. For more information about this ministry, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. So let's now open our Bibles and follow along with Pastor George as we loose the Scriptures and let them speak. Why don't you take your Bibles uh, with me and open up to the book of Colossians. We're back in Colossians chapter 1 this week. Uh, Right now our congregation is in between books. Uh, We wrapped up our study of 1 Peter and we're uh, preparing ourselves to jump into the book of Daniel, which I'm increasingly excited about and looking forward to, as I know a number of you are as well. Uh, But in between those two books, we're setting aside a few weeks to remind ourselves of who's in charge around here. And that shouldn't be a difficult question for any of you to answer, Uh, because if anyone asks you who's in charge of Baltimore Bible Church, there's only one right answer to that question, and the name is Jesus. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the church. If anyone were to ask you who's the founder of Baltimore Bible Church, who created it, the answer to that question is the same answer. It's the Sunday school answer, Jesus, Jesus is responsible for the church. If anyone were to ask you who deserves prominence and recognition around here, the answer is the same. It's Jesus Christ. Who who deserves the credit for anything that happens? It's Jesus Christ. There's no competition and there's no comparison. We're not entrepreneurs. We're not owners of anything. If I were an owner, uh, it would be lawful for me to do what I want with what's my own but I'm not the owner of the church. All I am is merely a steward. I don't have the right to choose what I do with what does not belong to me. I don't have the the liberty to do what I want in the church. I have an account to give. I have a master to please. And I'm merely a household manager, a house slave who manages the property of another. Over in 1 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 1, Paul makes this statement. He says, let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. He uses two words there. I'm a servant and I'm a steward. Two words Paul uses to describe his own ministry. The word servant is the the Greek word huperites. Speaks about somebody who's under another's authority. One lexicon says this about the word. It says that service, it's service that accepts subordination It's always at issue with this word, a service that accepts subordination. It actually comes from two Greek words, hupao, which means under, and erites, which means a rower, like like the rower on a ship, somebody who pulls the oar. And basically what it's meant to say is that the, the servant is the one who rowed under the direction of somebody else. Somebody says, pull, and you pull. Pull, and you pull. You're listening to the direction of somebody else. You're underneath that master. The second word that he uses is the word steward, oikonomos. It was a a word that was used for a household manager, a house slave, like Joseph in Potiphar's house. Genesis 39 and verse 4 speaks about Joseph, says that Joseph found favor in his sight, his master's sight, Potiphar, became his personal servant. He made him overseer over his house, And all that he owned was put underneath his charge. But Joseph understood that he was not the master of the house. He was the servant of the house. And that's how Paul understood his ministry. I'm I'm the servant of the house. 
I'm, I'm a servant. I pull my oar when the master says pull. I'm in the household, but this is not the household that belongs to me. Hands off Potiphar's wife, right? <laughs> it does not belong to you. The things in this house don't belong to me. I'm, I'm here just as a manager. So if you understand your position as a servant and as a steward, there's only one gauge for success. Have I been faithful to the master? That's the gauge for success. Have I pulled my oar when the master said pull? Have I, have I left alone the things that he said don't touch? Have I managed the things properly that he says I'm giving you delegated authority over these things? The gauge for success is faithfulness. Have I done what the master commanded me to do? The gauge for success is not popularity. You know, what do people think about me? You know, are, are my likes going up? Are my views increasing? That's not the gauge for success. The gauge for success is not the size of one's ministry. You know, how many people are showing up on a Sunday? That's not a gauge of success. There's people who are packing out the stadiums, but they're completely unfaithful. You know that, right? Unfaithful in ministry. Pack it out, but unfaithful. It's not about how much influence do I have. How many people are listening to me? The only proper gauge for success is am I pleasing to my master? And that's the same question that each of you need to ask. Am I being faithful to the master? Am I being faithful to Jesus Christ? The indicator for success is faithfulness, trustworthiness. And that's what Paul goes on to say in verse 2 of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. In this case, moreover, it is required of stewards that one be found trustworthy. We're merely stewards over the ministry that God has given to us. We're stewards. Bible goes on to talk about what that stewardship looks like. We're stewards of the gospel of God, 1 Corinthians 9, 16 and 17, where Paul says, if I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for I'm under compulsion, for woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this voluntarily, I have a reward, but if against my will, I have a stewardship entrusted to me. God has given me a stewardship. This is what you're responsible for, Paul. Get after it. You know, do, do what I've told you to do. Pull, pull the oar. Stewards of the mysteries of the truth of God. 1 Corinthians 4.1. Let a man regard us in this manner as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. We're stewards of the, the gifting or the grace of God. 1 Peter 4 verse 10 says, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another. Each of us has been given a spiritual gift and we're to be faithful with that which God has given to us. Stewards of the manifold grace of God. We're stewards of the church of God. 1 Timothy 3.15, Paul says, In case I am delayed, I write so that you may know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. In the church, I'm not an owner. I'm not a founder. I'm not the head. There's only one head of the church, and that head is Jesus Christ, and all glory goes to him. And Baltimore Bible Church, by God's grace, will continue to be a Christ-centered and Christ-exalting church. He's going to be first in our preaching, first in our singing, first in our serving, first in our evangelizing. There should be no area of the church where Jesus Christ is not prominent. And the reason why that's true is because of what we find in Colossians chapter 1, verses 18 to 20. And verse 18 specifically says, he himself will come to have first place in everything. That, that, that's, that should be the measure. Is, is Jesus Christ first in everything? 
Jesus is first of all and he's all in all. Where does Christ demonstrate his supremacy, his sufficiency? Where does Jesus Christ demonstrate himself to be all in all? Where does he display that authority and sovereignty? Last week we saw that Jesus does that in a general way in creation, but more specifically and particularly, he demonstrates that rule in his church. Let's read uh, Colossians chapter 1. I'll start at verse 15 just for the sake of context. Colossians chapter 1, starting at verse 15. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. Why don't you bow with me for a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, we uh, come before you, Lord, and My Father, we thank you for this text. My Father, we pray that you would help us to have a a greater vision of Jesus Christ, that he would be exalted in our ministry, in every aspect of our ministry, that Jesus Christ would be seen as supreme, as prominent. My Father, that there would be no question about why we do what we do. We, We don't do what we do for the attention or the praise of men. We don't do what we do for the recognition of men. We do what we do for Jesus Christ, that we would please him, that we would honor him, that we would pull our oar, that we would be faithful to steward that which he's granted to us to steward. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have a proper perspective on our lives, on our ministries, and I pray that you would help me as a weak instrument to be a blessing to your people, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. As we mentioned the last time that we were here, there's a, a parallelism and a symmetry that we find in the verses before us in verses 15 down to 20. In uh, verse 15, Jesus is called the firstborn of all creation. Then down in verse 18, he's called the firstborn from the dead. In verse 16, it speaks of all things created in the heavens and on the earth. And then verse 20 speaks of reconciling all things, whether on the earth or in the heaven. Verse 15 to 17 repeats this idea of all things, all things, all things, And then in verses 18 to 20, it repeats the idea of all things, all things, all things. And because of this parallelism and the symmetry and the repetition of words and themes, many scholars have concluded that what we have is an ancient hymn of the church. This is a a hymn to Christ as God. More than doctrine, this is doxology. This is praise to God. It's not just preaching, it's praise to God. It's not just an argument, it's adoration to God. And the reason Paul is so anxious to get to the supremacy of Christ, as we saw last time, is because there was false teaching that was circulating around the Colossian church, a false religion that was substituting everything else in the place of Jesus. And Jesus was getting lost in the middle of all these substitutions. They're looking at Jesus as somewhere down the line, and there were other things that they put in his place. They sought wisdom outside of Jesus Christ. They sought traditions besides Christ. They placed rituals above Christ. They pursued spiritual experiences apart from Christ. So Paul, right in the beginning of this letter, he he, he lets them know that that it's only Jesus. (laughs) Jesus is first place. He's, he's, He's everything. 
He's above all. He's all in all. He's destroying the speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God and taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. Everybody, come back underneath Jesus. Come back underneath Christ. He's letting the Colossian church know that, that Jesus doesn't share the throne with any of his rivals. He alone deserves the place of supremacy within the church. And specifically in verses 18 to 20, we're given four reasons why Christ deserves first place in the church. That, that little conjunction uh, that we find in verse 18, it's translated as so that in English. It's a, it's a Greek henna, but in English it, it, it's translated so that, and it really unlocks the meaning of this text. It, it lets us know why verses 18 to 20 exist. Why does this text exist? So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. The titles of supremacy that we'll explore in these verses all point to Jesus being first place in everything. That's what this is all about. There's, there's no place where Jesus doesn't rank first. There's no realm over which Christ does not declare that it's his. And what are those reasons? Why does Christ deserve first place in everything? Because he's the head of the church. He's the beginning of the church. He's the God of the church. And he's the reconciler of the church. Let's take a look again at verse 18. He is also head of the body, the church. In verse 18, Christ is pictured as the head of the body. Uh, The church is often pictured as a body in the scriptures. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 5, Paul says, we who are many are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. In uh, 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 12, uh, lets us know that even as the body is one and yet has many members, and all the members of the body, though they are many, are one body, so also is Christ. But the emphasis here in Colossians, as Paul is bringing out this idea of the body, is not to point to the many members, but to point to the one head. And the word head is used in this passage to suggest that Jesus is supreme. He's authoritative over the church. That's the same point that Paul makes over in uh, Ephesians chapter 1. If you want to flip over there uh, real quick, just flip back a couple pages to Ephesians chapter 1. Take a look at uh, Ephesians 1, uh, 21 and 22. As Paul here makes the the same point. Actually, you know what? I'm going to start at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened, so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in a great which he brought about in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And where was that place? Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion in every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What we find is that Jesus Christ is supreme. He's the head. He has all rule and authority. And that idea of headship carries with it the idea of authority. But recently, that idea has been attacked. The idea of headship has been attacked as if we don't really understand what it means by being the head. Recently, by evangelical feminists. You know, we we hear about toxic masculinity all the time, but there's toxic femininity as well. (laughs) Attacked by evangelical feminists who don't like the implications of headship, especially as it relates to marriage and the roles of women in the church, So they say, you know what, headship doesn't mean authority, it just means, you know, that he's the source of everything. 
You know, because the same word shows up in Ephesians 5 where it speaks about the husband being the head of the wife. So they say we can't have the husband being the head of the wife, you know, authoritative over the wife. So they change the meaning of headship to be something else other than what we would understand it to be. You know, it's also brought up again in 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 3, where it says, I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man. The man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. And because they don't want to acknowledge the headship of man over the woman, they redefine headship as uh, just the source of of things, you know, like, like the head of a, a river, like the, the source for a river, they, they try to relate it to that. So in their efforts to take down the authority of men, they've taken down the authority of Christ with it. But is that how we're to understand headship here? That's the question. Wayne Grudem studied the Greek word for head that's used here, the, the Greek word kephale, and he examined 2,336 examples of its use in Greek literature. 2,300 36 examples. It went all the way from Homer in the 8th century to the church fathers in the 4th century. And never, when the word headship is used of a person, does it mean anything else other than authority, governing, ruling. And all that to say is that the meaning is clear. Jesus is governing, ruling, giving direction to the church. And all are to fall in line underneath Christ. We don't have the authority to imagine the church the way we would like it to be. We fall underneath the headship of Jesus Christ. And the head of the household is the man in charge. The center of operations is called the headquarters. And the center of operations for the church is the Lord of the church. And Jesus Christ is the head of his household. 1 Timothy 3.15 says, In case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the support of the truth. If, if you came into my house and you started rearranging my furniture and uh, you took down my pictures off the wall and started putting your family up in its place, uh, it would be a very short stay at my house. <laughs> like like I, I didn't ask you for that. I don't, I'm not asking for an interior decorator here. You, you don't have the authority to come into my house and do what you want. You know, just walk in and I'll kick my feet up on your dining room table. No, that's, that's not where your feet belong. This is my house. And if you want to do that at your house, that's fine. I just won't come over to eat at your house. But, but don't kick your feet up on my dining room table where I eat. Like, like it's my house, my rules. But some people think they have the right to come in and be the property brothers in Jesus' church. We're, we're going to reimagine how things need to be in here. You know, I, could, I, could, I think we need an open concept over here, you know. Let's knock down a couple walls. We need, we need more room in here. You know, I want to change the colors around. I, you know, I think the bathroom needs to be on that side of the house. No, you don't come into somebody else's house and rearrange it. This is, this is the house of the living God, the church of the living God. You don't have the liberty to come in and, and re organize God's house. The church doesn't need innovation or renovation. We don't need interior decorators in the church, and I'm not talking about the building. You know, we could use interior decorators in the building, but we're talking about ministry. We don't reorganize ministries, you know, the way that suits us. Christ is the one who directs and governs the church. Earlier in the same chapter, Colossians chapter 1 and verse 13, we're told that the Father rescued us from the domain of darkness, and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Whose kingdom? Christ's kingdom. He's the king. 
He's the one who gives the direction. Christ directs his church, and he does that through his word. Christ is the one who directs his church. He does that through his word, not through government edicts, not through our experiences, not through supposed revelations that we've seen apart from Scripture. It's through the Word of God that Christ directs His church. Colossians chapter 2. Flip over to Colossians chapter 2 real quick. We've seen this before. But listen to what uh, Paul says here. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 18. Paul says, Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of the angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his fleshly mind, and not holding fast to the head. We have a lot of people that, you know, walk around the church today, and I've, I've, I've seen a vision. I've, I've, I've had a word from God. God. God has given me a word for you. And they want to tell you all that the Lord has told them that you know, he hasn't revealed in his word. I, I had a... a, a a girl one time said, told me that, you know, God told me that I'm supposed to marry you. It's like, well, when he tells me, I'll let you know. <laughs> like, like, we have all kinds of people that have all kinds of visions and dreams, and the Lord's speaking to me here, there, and everywhere. Here a vision, there a vision, everywhere a vision, vision. Everybody's got a word. Everybody's got something to say that God has not said. And it says here that those who walk around with these inflated opinions of their visions and angels and dreams... It says they've lost their minds. <laughs> they have lost their minds. Now, that's the vernacular way to put that, right? They're not holding fast to the head. You, you've lost your heads when you're doing that. Here a vision, there a vision. You've lost your mind to come in here and try to direct the church based on what you've seen. Lost your head. And a headless body is a dead body. And any group that claims to be a church that's not firmly attached to the Lord Jesus Christ is a dead body. You're not attached to the head. We need to be attached to the head. He is the head of the church. Number two, he's the beginning of the church. Back to Colossians chapter one, look at verse 18 again. He's also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Not only is he the president, he's also the founder. The church is not some human invention, no angel, no man can say that I will build my church. Jesus is the beginning of the church. He will build his church. You may be able to, you know, construct a great building, put some pews in it, you know, put a cross on the top and call it a church, but that does not mean that it's a church because Christ builds his church and he builds it with people, not bricks. I will build my church. He's speaking, he's not speaking about a building fund. You know, how many times have you seen churches use that for their building drive? You know, I will build my church. You know, we only need 20,000 more dollars, you know, if we can build. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about erecting a building. He's talking about gathering his elect into the kingdom. Gathering sinners into the fold. Transferring people from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. That's what it's talking about. Christ will build that church. That's the church that Christ is building. The word for church in verse 18 is ecclesia. It means an assembly, a congregation, a group of people. And Jesus is saying, I will build my assembly, my group, my gathering, my people, my redeemed community. And they will gather around the confession that I am the Christ, the son of the living God. 
That was Peter's confession back in Matthew 16. That's how Christ gathers his church. I will build my church. And the success of this mission was certain because Jesus declared that he would do it. I will build my church. It's a personal mission. I will do this. He does it personally. He's gathering a people for himself. He's involved in the process. Father elects. The the Spirit applies the work. But the Son is involved in the construction of his holy temple. He is building it. Just like Jesus was involved in the, uh, the, the physical creation, all things were made through him, right? Jesus was involved in the physical creation. He's also involved in the new creation, bringing people to himself, and he does that through his atoning work. It's also an intentional mission. I will build my church. It's certainty, divine intention behind that. It's not merely making salvation possible and hoping somebody out there responds, oh, please, somebody pick up the line. You know, Mr. Telephone Man, there's something wrong with my line. You know, I'm trying to get to these people, but they're just not, not calling me back. They're not, I just hear a click every time. You know, I just need some way to get through to these people. It's, it's not just like I'm, I'm hoping that somehow uh, this will work out. I I'm, I'm made it possible. Somebody please respond. No, that's not what it is. John 6, 37 says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. I will build my church. Why? Because they will come. They will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. Church is not going to be an unfinished building project. You know, how how many unfinished construction projects do we have out there? I remember when I was uh, recently in the the Caribbean, and uh, there's all kinds of buildings just scattered around, foundation, rebar sticking out the ground, but nothing else going on. Nobody working on it. Unfinished projects. Why? Because they ran out of the money. Saw the same thing when I was visiting my friend in Arizona, all kinds of buildings up there, just a shell and nothing on the inside. Why? Because they ran out of the money. So it just sits there, an unfinished project. There's not going to be an unfinished project in heaven. The body of Christ will not be missing any limbs. The spiritual house won't be missing a kitchen or a bathroom. You know, the, the, the spiritual house is going to have everything finished, built out, because Christ says, I will build it. I'm going to finish it. He's not waiting for a couple more bricks. You know, if, if I only had a couple more bricks, we could finish this thing. No, everything that he needs is going to be brought in. They will come, and I will build. And the gates of Hades will not overpower it. It's going to be a successful mission. Hell can't keep those that Christ brings to himself. Verse 13 in Colossians chapter 1 says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Hell will not stop the church. The term Hades that's used back in uh, Matthew is used throughout scripture for the realm of the dead, the, the departed. It's used to translate the Old Testament term for the grave, for Sheol. And it's through death that Christ crushed death to death. <laughs> death is not going to stop the church. There's going to be a great resurrection, right? There, there's nothing that's going to stop this church. Look again at verse 18. It says, he is the firstborn from the dead, back in Colossians 1. What does that mean? As we brought out last week, it doesn't mean that Christ was the first person to die. It doesn't mean that he was the first person to be resurrected. You know, there's, there's many who were resurrected in Scripture. The, the widow of Zarephath, her son was, resurrect, uh, her son was resurrected, 1 Kings 17. Uh, somebody fell on Elisha's bones, and he was resurrected, 2 Kings 13. Uh, the daughter of Jairus, the, the synagogue official, Mark 5, 41, she was raised. Jesus stopped the funeral procession in Luke 7 and verse 12 and raised the son to life. Lazarus, John 11, 
Lazarus come forth. There, was, there were many resurrections. So it's not that Jesus was the first person to be resurrected, but out of all who were resurrected, Jesus is first, first place, the firstborn. And that, that word firstborn means supremacy. He's the preeminent one. Originally used for the firstborn son of a family, but eventually was used for the position of prominence alone. Israel was the firstborn. David was considered the firstborn. Jacob received the rights of the firstborn. All these uh, people in the Old Testament considered firstborn, but they were not the first to be born in the family. But they received that position, the right, the inheritance. And so that comes to Christ. He is the, the preeminent one of all who have died. The preeminent one of all who came back to life. And he's the first fruits of those who would come. That's Jesus Christ. He's the preeminent one, position overall, the highest. So Christ is the head of the church. He's the beginning of the church. He holds these titles. And there's no other created being anywhere that can claim these titles for himself. And why is that so important? Is there a reason that these titles should go to Christ? Is there a reason an angel can be considered the beginning is there a reason that, you know, some man can be considered the, uh, the firstborn from the dead? Why, why isn't anybody else going to have these titles? Why? I love this. This is what we pointed out already in verse 18. So that he himself will come to have first place in everything. We're given the reason why he has these titles. There, there's that le- little Greek preposition, henna, like I said, is translated so that. In order that. He might have first place in everything. Wherever there's a title that deserves honor, respect, glory, Christ says, I want that. (laughs) I want that title. That title belongs to me because I'm first place in everything. In everything, Christ wants first place. And just to think about this, if there was somebody else who deserved that title, head of the body, origin of the church, the most preeminent one from the dead, what would we be tempted to do? We'd be tempted to give honor to him to give glory to him, to give worship and praise to him. Because like he, he's the first, he's the beginning, he's the, like, like that's the one who deserves worship, right? And if you want a, a living illustration of how that works, uh, think about what we would do with uh, somebody who's called the queen of heaven and the mother of God. What, what are people tempted to do when somebody's given titles like that? What are they tempted to do? Oh, this is the person we need to give worship to. We need to pray to her. It's the same thing that's happening in the Roman Catholic Church all the time. She has these elevated titles that don't belong to her, and people are tempted to worship her, to pray to her, to give glory to her that doesn't belong to her. Jesus says, where there's a title that deserves glory, praise, honor, it's mine. It it comes to me. You, you, You do know that God is a jealous God, right? God is a jealous God. In fact, the vast majority of the times that you find that word jealous in Scripture, guess who it's talking about? It's talking about God. The God is the jealous God. You you don't give to another what belongs to God. God is described as the jealous God. Exodus 34 verse 14 says, You shall not worship any other God, for the Lord whose name is jealous is a jealous God. And Christ will have no rivals, no competition. There's not going to be anybody else who's going to deserve that kind of glory. Because Christ says, that belongs to me. I am the one who's going to be first. Not only is he the head of the church, the beginning of the church. Number three, he's also the God of the church. Look at verse 19. It says, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. The fullness of what? It says all the fullness. What, the fullness of what? What kind of fullness are we talking about? 
You, you don't have to go far to, to find out what the fullness refers to. Back in Colossians chapter 2 and verse 9, for in him all the fullness of what? Deity, the Godhead, dwells in bodily form. It's been pointed out that the word for fullness here is used consistently for all that's contained in that word. For example, in uh, Psalm 96 and verse 11, it says, Let the heavens be glad, let the earth rejoice, let the sea roar, and all it contains. All that it contains. It uses the same Greek word for fullness, uh, the Greek word pleroma. All that it contains is the fullness. Psalm 24, verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and all it contains. The world... And everything in it, it uses that in the, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, pleroma, the fullness, all that is in it, all that is contained in it. So when we read that Jesus is the, the fullness of the Godhead bodily, or the fullness of deity in bodily form, it's saying that everything that's contained in God is contained in Jesus. He's the fullness. Everything that's true about God is true about Jesus. He, he contains everything that is true about God. He has it all. All that God contains is in Christ. But even if we didn't have Colossians 2.9 to show us that Jesus is being equated with God, we'd only have to ask ourselves one question. Who's first? Who is first? There's only one question to that. No one answer to that question, right? One answer to that question. Who's first? God is first. And if Jesus is first, then who does that mean that he is? He's God. He can't have two firsts. <laughs> There's only one first, right? You know, who's on first? You know, Jesus is on first. <laughs> He's first. You can't have two on first. If Jesus is first and God is first, that means that Jesus is God. Fill in the blank. <laughs> it's, it's not that hard. God the Father was pleased for the fullness of deity to dwell in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And he turns around to the angels in Hebrews 1 verse 6 and says, let all the angels of God worship him. He, he deserves the glory. He deserves the praise. Like lift him up. He's first place. Why? He's the preeminent one. He's the supreme one because he's God. I mean, that, that's, the, that's the, the, the understanding of that. You worship God only. Him alone shall you serve. Anything else is idolatry. God is not an idolater. And he tells all the angels, I want you to worship him. I want you to worship him. Jesus deserves first place in the church because he's the God of the church. And there's a final reason that Paul gives for Christ to be viewed as supreme. Back to Colossians chapter one, look at verse 20 again. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. He changes things from hostility to friendship. He brings it back to the former state of harmony. The specific uh, form of the, the verb that's used here for reconciliation is intensive, meaning that it's a full reconciliation. It's not only the Father's good pleasure that the fullness dwell in the Son, but it was also the Father's good pleasure that all things would be reconciled through the Son, fully reconciled through the Son. And just to make sure that we didn't miss the point, Paul repeats the word twice, or the phrase twice, through him. Verse 20, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross through him. And just in case you missed it the first time, it's through him. It's through him, I say. And the idea is that it's through him and through him alone. Nobody else can reconcile us to God. There's no other room for anybody else to be in this equation. How are we reconciled to God? It's not 
through angels. There's no room for Mary in here. There's no room for the saints. There's no room for the Pope. There's no room for your good works. There's no room for your baptism. There's no room for communion in here. No room for rituals. No room for observances. It's through who? It's through him, I say. How are we reconciled to God? It's not through anything else. It's not through what you can do. It's not through your good works. It's through faith in Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ alone. He is the only one that can reconcile you to God. And if you're here today and you think that somehow I'm going to get to God based on what I can do, I'm just trying to do the best I can, you know, because I want to earn heaven. You know, I'm trying to get to 100 because 99 just won't do. I'm just trying to do all I can to, to, to make it cross those pearly gates. Just if I can just, if I can just, just bring myself to it. I just, I'm trying to reach the goal. You're never going to reach it. Never going to reach it. If, if you think that you can get to heaven based on what you can do, it's like a slap in the face of Jesus Christ. It's basically telling Jesus that, you know what, you didn't really have to come down here and give your life because I could have took care of that myself. What did Jesus say when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane? Father, if there is any other way, if there is any other way, let this cup pass from me. Did Jesus go to the cross? Did Jesus drink the cup? The wrath of the Father poured out upon him. Why did he do that? Because you had no way to get in on your own. You could not do it. You could not reconcile yourself to God. Reconciliation had to be offered to you, given to you. Peace had to be made for you. And the peace came through Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ lived the perfect life that we couldn't live. That, that 99 that we were trying to reach, you know, you were 99 in the other direction. Jesus gave 100%. Always did what pleased the Father. My beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased. Jesus lived the perfect life that you couldn't live. And when he died on the cross, he suffered the wrath of God. The wrath of God poured out upon him. He took the brunt of the wrath of God in your place. Why? So that peace could be offered to you. Wrath has been removed. Now I can offer you peace. I can offer you peace in the place of wrath. There's no more left. I drank the cup of wrath down to the last drop. There's, there's nothing left for you. Wrath is gone. I've borne the wrath of God. Now you can receive the peace of God. And the only way that we receive that peace is through saying, Lord, I'm, I'm turning away from my sin and I'm trusting in the Savior. I'm not gonna try to come any other way. If you try to come another way, you're like a thief and a robber trying to climb over the gate when you should be knocking at the door. <laughs> and Jesus Christ is the door. The way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through him. Through him, I say. The only way you get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. It's through him. I come through the door. He is the door to heaven. He makes the peace. And I don't know why we're not stunned when we see this, that he makes peace. How did he make peace? Let's us know how he made that peace. Through the blood of his cross. That's graphic, isn't it? The, the only way that peace could be made for us was through a bloody death. The blood of his cross. The cross wasn't just an instrument of, of death. Jewish, Jewish execution was by stoning. Roman execution was by the sword. Both of them were quick. 
Crucifixion was a way to drag it out. Drag it out. I mean, you're going to feel every bit of this pain. We're going to drag this out. Why is it described as, a, as the blood of his cross? Because there's, it's, it's going to be a bloody death. And we're going to drag it out. Not only was it a, a bloody and painful death, it was also a, a humiliating death. As you're stripped and beat and spit on and beat in the head. Hung up on a cross for everybody to see. Everybody, hey, look at, look at the king. Here he is. Here he is. There's the king. That's your king, Israel. Why, why, why would they do that? It's, it's to humiliate them. You know, you, you say that you're the king. I mean, why don't, why don't you get, get a couple soldiers or somebody to save you? I mean, seriously. You know, if you're the king, aren't, aren't, can't you command people? Like, like where, where's the entourage here, Jesus? Where, where are the soldiers in your defense? You know, don't you have an army king? Nobody's coming to get you? To the point where Jesus even said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Left alone to die. And that's the death that made your salvation possible. That's, that's how you enter into the peace of God. My son has taken it for you. He's done everything that was necessary for you. And now I can offer you peace. Peace comes to you through the blood of his cross. The greatest peace that we need is not peace in Russia and Ukraine. The greatest peace that we need is not between warring family members. The greatest peace that we need is not at the Oscars. <laughs> the greatest peace that we need is the blood of his cross. That's, that's where you need peace, right? Jesus took the full blows of God's righteous anger against sin so that you wouldn't have to. That's, that's what Jesus did. And the peace assumes that there was war, right? <laughs> There's hostility. Do, do you know that you don't come into this world as a friend of God? Do, do you understand that? Like you're an enemy of God? That's what, I mean, Christ came to save his enemies. You were an enemy of God. Romans 5.10, for if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, how much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God wasn't looking down at a group of lovely people just saying, oh Lord, I, I just, I really want to get to you. I'm just trying all that I can. That's not who he's looking at. It's not a group of people that are friendly towards him. A group of people that are neutral towards him. If I just knew the way to go, I would go. Oh Lord, just show me the way. That's all I need. Just, just a little bit more information, Lord. That's all I need. No, that, that's, not, that's not who you were. Don't, don't fool yourself. That was not you. You were hostile towards God. And you know, know how I know that you were hostile? Because you sinned against God. You were a rebel against God. God, I'll do this my way. I'm going to go my own direction. All of us like sheep have gone astray. I'm, I'm going to go my own path. Forget those meadows over there. I, I think there's better food over here. Just like Adam and Eve. You know, why, why eat from all the, the bounty of this garden? I want the tree in the middle. That's what I want. And that's how we live. We live as rebels against God, against our creator. Searching for everything else instead of the sufficiency that's found in Jesus Christ. Looking for everything else. So God looked at a group of rebels and he says, you know what? I'm going to bring them back to myself and I'm going to do it through him. Through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. 
We'll talk a little bit more about reconciliation next week. We have another week that we're going to be in Colossians chapter 1. But if you walk away from this message and anybody asks you, you know, who's, who's in charge around here? You, you already know the answer to that. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is in charge. Amen? Let's uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, uh, we thank you, God, so much for your word. Uh, we pray that your word would um, help us to, to grow, to grow in obedience. Help us to, to, to offer you glory, offer glory to the Son, the one who is the fullness of deity and bodily form, the fullness of Godhead bodily, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for Jesus. And uh, we pray that uh, you would help us to honor our head and follow our head, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we praise you and give you thanks. Amen. You have been listening to George Lawson, Jr. of Baltimore Bible Church. To hear other messages or to find out about upcoming events or where we meet for weekly church services, please visit us online at www.baltimorebiblechurch.org. Baltimore Bible Church reserve all copyright protection under applicable law. Our copyright policy is available on our website and includes instructions for and limitations on duplicating CDs and all digital files.